This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. When you think of a traditional office workplace in the U.S., what comes to mind? For some, that means cubicles. Others might picture a private corner office suite with a view. For Adam Newman, the vision of a workplace was more collaborative. His former company, WeWork, leased hundreds of thousands of square feet of real estate in cities around the country, converted it to shared office space, and then subleased segments of the offices to different companies and freelancers. As WeWork expanded globally, dozens of other companies joined the shared office space market. Now, co-working offices can be found in virtually every city around the world. But earlier this month, WeWork, undeniably the most dominant player in the shared workspace movement, filed for bankruptcy. The company reported massive debts and millions of dollars in unpaid rent. It's the latest in a series of financial pitfalls the company suffered since 2019 when Newman was fired as CEO. Later in the show, we speak to the owner of a co-working space about what WeWork's bankruptcy means for the future of the industry. But before we head there, how did a company once valued at $47 billion shrink to less than $50 million? And what does the rise and fall of WeWork mean for the future of co-working spaces? We'll get into all of that and more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. Joining us for the conversation is Maureen Farrell. She's a finance reporter for The New York Times and joins us from Brooklyn. Maureen, welcome. Thanks for having me. Also with us from London is Elliot Brown. He's a finance reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Elliot, welcome to the program. Happy to be here. Maureen and Elliot are co-authors of The Cult of We, WeWork, Adam Newman, and The Great Startup Delusion. Elliot, in the company's November 7th bankruptcy filing, WeWork reported it was more than $18 billion in debt and had around $100 million in unpaid rent. What caused the company's financial troubles? It, it, it was sort of this two-act play, uh, the, the, the first over you know, a large number of years, 10, where under its former founder, at, at, or its founder, Adam Newman, it, it just kind of recklessly expanded and, 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 and lost extraordinary amounts of money, uh, sort of under the idea it was a tech company. 
Um, and then sort of the, the, he was ousted and, and the more recent um, answer is a lot simpler, which is uh, it's a really bad time to be in office space. The, the pandemic has, has kind of, um, you know, made demand plunge. And so WeWork was already really hobbled by, by the Adam Newman era and, and then kind of got, got pushed over the edge by, by the pandemic. Maureen Elliott said it was working under the idea that it was a tech company. Was it a tech company? It never was a tech company, um, but m- plenty of the world's top investors seem to believe for a time that it was and bought into it at valuations like they would a tech company as if it could have expanded and had the profits of one, um, yet it never, it never manifested what Adam Newman uh, told them. Well, the bankruptcy was filed under WeWork's newest CEO, David Tolley, who permanently moved into the position in October. Elliot, why did he choose to file bankruptcy at this moment? Yeah, so, I mean, basically, bankruptcy court is, is a really easy way that you can cancel leases. And so the, 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 the fundamental problem WeWork had is what, what they were doing is they were, they were going into an office building, leasing space from a landlord at, at, for 10 years, and, and then to month by month sort of saying to small businesses or medium-sized businesses, hey, rent from us at a much higher rate. And when their, you know, long-term leases suddenly, uh, you know, you, you keep having to pay those. And then suddenly if the short-term lease to the, the small business, if, if the price the business is going, willing to pay for that plunges, th- then you, you aren't making any profit. And, and so that's the situation they're in. And so if you go into bankruptcy, you, you know, you, you can at least try to, to cancel a bunch of your leases, which is what they're trying to do, and, and maybe come out of this a, a workable company that can actually make a profit after 13 years. Well, we work as you said, was led by its founder, Adam Newman, until 2019, when he took a $1.7 billion payout to leave the company after a series of financial missteps. Maureen, how did Adam Newman make the case for this business model for so long? I mean, it was an amazing, um, uh, amazing act each step of the way. I mean, one thing he always, he he had this ability to sort of do the impossible. So, you know, early on, he said this was going to be a giant global company. People questioned him and it just kept on growing. He kept on getting more investors in. Um, it was sort of like a, it, it just a little bit fed on itself. He would get money in. They would use it for expansion, promise profits that never came about. But ultimately, I mean, he landed sort of the biggest investor or the biggest tech investor in the world at the time, uh, or the biggest tech fund, which was Masayoshi Son of SoftBank, and who gave him billions and billions of dollars. They were already on this sort of giant expansion path. But suddenly, with Masa and SoftBank's money, he had so much more to spend. So at some point, it became him convincing one man who had this uh, access to this $100 billion-ish of capital, which a lot, a bunch of it, he plunged into WeWork. And uh, obviously, it has not gone very well as an investment. Now, over the last year, WeWork lost almost 98% of its stock valuation. Elliot, how does the company represent, as your book title says, the great startup delusion? Yeah, so I, I think essentially what what happened here is is you know we we like to use the the example of of, of 
Adam Newman and, and his skill at salesmanship, sort of what he was able to do is he, he wasn't lying, but, but he was able to convince people to see something that wasn't. So, so it's almost like you had a, a pigeon in front of you and, and he would say in a really convincing, compelling way, this, this, is, this is a beautiful dove. Uh, and, you know, it would be a pigeon, but, but he would make you, when you're sitting there in, in the, you know, six feet across from him, you'd sort of fall under his spell and, and see a, a beautiful dove or swan where, where there's actually an ugly bird. So what, what he was able to do, you know, at this time in, in sort of uh, capitalism, in, in, in Silicon Valley's prominence and rise, was tell everybody WeWork was part of X, and, and X kept changing. So, so early on, he he would tell everyone uh, in 2008 it was the iPhone. Now it's now it's about we, uh, and so then Facebook took off, and then suddenly they they were the the physical social network, uh, and, and then. Um, you know, come twenty, you know, fifteen, they were part of the sharing economy, uh, and and you know, like Uber and Airbnb. So he was able to just sort of form fit and and shift into these, uh, you know, whatever the the flavor of the the, the day was. Mm. Well, WeWork's bankruptcy comes at a time when other shared office space companies are raking in record profits. That includes Industrious. It's a flexible workplace company with co-working offices around the country. Here's what Industrious's chief operating officer, Liz Simon, told us. First and foremost, it's about being where people want to work. Um, we know that commute is one of the biggest barriers to people coming into the office today. And so, you know, part of our strategy is being in the neighborhoods where people want to be, where they live, where they work, where they play. And work is not, you know, a distinct thing from the rest of the activities that they're doing in their life. And then when they have to do, when they do have to commute, making the experience so welcoming, empowering, delightful, a place where people can have a sense of community, can be among like-minded people, can be really productive and feel like they're in an aspirational, inspirational space, like they're a real boss. Like that's what Industrious has to offer. And we do that through a really, you know, high touch hospitality focused model that we think makes us really unique in the industry. Maureen, how how commonly do we see founder CEOs with these unconventional leadership styles, companies that become flushed with cash, experience similar business trajectories? I mean, WeWork might have been one of the largest, but I mean, we've seen it sort of defined this era of in the leading up to the pandemic, this low interest rate era, essentially, we saw, um, you know, even even since the financial crisis, investors really wanted to make bets. They had a, they were flush with money. They needed to get big returns. So they were willing to take bets on these big ideas. It was, you know, it was the traditional Silicon Valley investors but what we saw in WeWork, and we've seen them in a lot of other co- of these companies that you describe, is the T-Rows and the Fidelities, the types of investors that, you know, invest your pension and your retirement savings. And they were putting uh, into these sort of un- a lot of money into these unproven business models with the idea that they could have these huge returns, that they were going to create the next Facebook, the next Apple and why not take a bet? Why not put a certain amount of money in? Interest rates were low. They needed the big returns. So we saw a lot of it. It was sort of an era-defining moment. And what I think Elliot and I really thought as we were writing our book was uh, we were sort of seemed to be the end of the era. And then came the pandemic. And then came, you know, all the new um, policies of the Fed. Once again, we saw another uh, burst of this 
startup activity. We saw SPACs. We saw new companies being created going out with no business model, even in the public markets, and getting um, huge amounts of capital. And now we're watching the aftermath of this. Before we head to break, let's head to our inbox. Dan in D.C. writes, On my daily commute from Silver Spring to Capitol Hill on the red line, I am totally depressed to pass by so many shiny, new, and empty government office buildings. I then walk into my overpriced co-working space. It's a 10-foot by 10-foot room in a drab building. Government agencies could rent their space to individuals like me at a bargain and make tons of money. I get the security concerns, but I can't believe those beautiful buildings are only half full at best. We'll be back with the conversation in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics. With vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon. This message comes from NPR sponsor Noom. Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, helps you build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. Check out The Noom Kitchen for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing. Like, not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. Dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show, Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to the conversation with this message we got from one of you. My name is John, and I am an extremely exciting accountant from Boston. And I had an experience at a WeWork-type establishment. What I liked most about it was that I got to train with a colleague of mine, and I got to do that live. Um, that was fantastic. The, the thing I liked least about the experience was we didn't know exactly how long we were going to need, and the reservation experience didn't allow a lot of flexibility. John, thanks for that message. Hey, Elliot, when you l- think about your reporting on WeWork, was this collapse inevitable or did the pandemic mark a turning point for the company that they just couldn't recover from? Uh, yeah, it's a complicated answer. So, so I think <clears throat> the collapse was uh, inevitable in that th- th- it was always based on false assumptions. I, you know, the, the idea that WeWork was somehow going to be some really profitable tech-like company uh, simply because its CEO said it would, uh, and while it was spending money on on you know, it bought a surf uh, pool company. It, it was investing in coffee creamer companies because the CEO liked the CEOs of them. Uh, it was giving money to Ashton Kutcher. It, it, it wasn't going to be profitable based on that. The, the thing that, that I guess wasn't inevitable was that it, after Adam Newman was kicked out that it would go to bankruptcy. I think they had so much money that, that they were given by SoftBank to bail themselves out and sort of turn this into a real company. It can work, but but just not with the sort of dynamics of 
that they've been hit with, with you know, falling rents, and stuck with these high rents from the peak era. I mean, Maureen, I can't get around the fact that this was initially sold as a tech company. That was what they presented. But when you when you just look at it on paper, this is a real estate business. And I'm trying to understand how they made it around what seems very obvious. Yeah, it was really, um, it's sort of unbelievable. And I think it, as we were reporting both the stories for the Wall Street Journal and then especially our book, it was uh, just fascinating to sort of unpack those conversations that Adam Newman had with, I mean, really some of the smartest investors in the entire world. I mean, it was like Harvard's endowment, as I said, T. Rowe Price, Fidelity, um, top Silicon Valley investors who were investing in these top tech companies. Um, As Elliot said, he had this sort of magical ability to convince people to see something that wasn't there. So I, I totally agree with you. The one thing that we kind of witnessed time and time again as we you know heard about these conversations was that oftentimes he would go to a big fund meet the main person running it the main decision maker convince them they would then have their underlings do a lot of work on the business these underlings would come back to them and say this doesn't make any sense there are all these red flags we don't see how it's going to work and then the decision maker would be so enthralled and infatuated with Adam Newman and be- like their belief in his power that they would say, you know, let's ignore all that. Let's just take this chance. Hmm. And it happened time and time again with bigger and bigger investors all around the world. It was it was incredible. Elliot, Adam Newman was booted from the company. He got a, a payout over a billion dollars. Where is he now? Uh, yeah, I mean, he, he's doing okay, uh, you know, if, if, assuming billionaire counts as that. He actually, kind of to both of our amazement, um, raised $350 million from, from a, a top venture capital firm, Andreessen Horowitz, to uh, start a new venture. And uh, wait for it, it is a real estate company with a tech valuation uh, that, that focuses on community. And, and uh, this time it's, it's focused on, on apartments, uh, but, but uh, they, they also have, have indicated they might expand back into office. <laughs> How? <laughs> How? <laughs> it, is it the same dynamic at work again? You know- uh, yes, I, I, he is. For, you know, one one kind of big real estate guy I know it, it calls him the world's best salesman. So, so I think that that's part of it. The the other thing that's really at play, and this is really what we you know kind of um, I guess intrigued both of us the most with, with, with reporting it was just this this meme in Silicon Valley that that the founder is is this omnipotent being and and so uh, that that only founders are visionary enough and only someone you know kind of crazy should should be able to raise so much money and expand and so he he has that you know je ne sais quoi and and Andreessen Horowitz sort of um i i guess has a brand out of uh, f- backing founders that are a little controversial, and and uh, that's certainly what they've been doing lately. And and uh, y- you know, is this nice meeting of the minds? And and um, y- we'll we'll see where it goes. I suppose. Mm. Maureen, what's the state of WeWork as a company today? I mean, it's in this process, um, as we said, you know, ba- going through bankruptcy, canceling leases. I mean, a lot of people 
anecdotally, I've heard, I guess, two things, you know, it's not all, all the things that we talked about earlier, just sort of the excitement, um, this sort of like the hype around it. It seems like it's now, you know, I don't think anyone would quite say the same thing anymore. It's like a place to go and work. Um, and you can get real estate spaces. Some of the spaces are beautiful. Some maybe a little worse for the wear. Um, but the thing that I've heard anecdotally, particularly in New York, is, um, you know, you can get off. People are bidding down office space, clearly. You know, there's a there's so much supply, not enough demand. So I know people have sort of bid against WeWork, bid down their um, their current landlords. They're saying, oh, we could get WeWork at this price. We could get our current space. There's just the power is in the hands of even the solo entrepreneur, the small business owner, the bigger business owner. So they're in a tough spot. In just a sentence or two, I'd love to hear from both of you the, the lesson here, whether it's for other companies in the co-working space or it's for tech as a whole. Elliot? Um, big question. I, I, I think, you know, just just beware of overpromising. These are, these are very simple uh, you know, companies, and it's just real estate, and 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 to believe that it's something so much more, which which has happened many times before, it, it, it can lead to a huge amount of problems, which is what we we're seeing. Maureen, what about for you? We just there needs to be gatekeepers every step of the way. I mean, what I think what happened here clearly was Adam Newman had so much power; he had sort of amassed it in so many ways. People were waiting for this big giant payout that he would give them, the investors, employees. And people were really scared to take him to task. And it sort of created this business that made, you know, didn't make a lot of sense. He didn't have, he had a board where they barely had board meetings. He had, you know, people around him who were, it was tough to stand up to Adam Newman. And he, you know, it was irrational a lot of what he was doing. He was this visionary, but he needed, he needed gates around him. And I think we need to see that. We've seen, you know, we've continued to see it, whether it's Sam Bankman Freed different situation, but um, the power of the founder of this visionary really hasn't um, been like been cut off at all. I think this this still we still continue to see this happen. That's Maureen Farrell and Elliot Brown. They're co-authors of The Cult of We, We Work, Adam Newman, and The Great Startup Delusion. Maureen Elliott, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks so much for having us. Now that WeWork has filed for bankruptcy and is moving to close many locations, how should we think about the future of co-working spaces? Let's welcome two new voices to the conversation. Emma Goldberg is a business reporter covering workplace culture and the future of work for the New York Times. She joins us from Brooklyn, New York. Emma, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me on. And with us in studio is Andy Herrick. She's the owner and instructor at Alcova Yoga and Coworking. That's a dual co-working office space and yoga studio based in Washington, D.C. Andy, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. So, Emma, the Bureau of Labor estimates that in 2020, about half of all paid work hours were done remotely. That's compared to just 5% of paid work hours before 2020. How much are Americans working remotely this year? That's right. It was a massive leap. 
And it's one that we're still seeing fluctuating a lot. I think people expected that there would be this huge reset back to the way things were in 2021 or 2022. But instead, hybrid work has been a lot stickier than I think anyone could have imagined. So right now, just over a quarter of paid working days in the U.S. are done from home. And offices are still plateaued at about half of their pre-pandemic occupancy. So there's a lot of people who are either working from home, you know, most of the time or cobbling together some three days in the office, two days at home. Andy, you opened your dual co-working space and yoga studio earlier this year. How did the idea for this company come about? Yeah, I was kind of looking for a way to bring wellness into the workday a little bit more seamlessly. And post-grad, I've noticed a lot of my friends working remotely are looking for kind of more of a community space and a bit more of a productive environment um, than working from home. How does your business model differ from other players in the co-working space? I think our two-pronged model differs uh, because we have the yoga studio on the first floor. We have the co-working space on the second floor. So members can choose if they want to just do co-working, just do yoga, or be a member of both. Uh, We also have community events um, and several wellness amenities like a meditation room that would uh, set us apart from the others. We're going to take a quick break here, but we'll be back with more in just a moment. Stay with us. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Andy, what's the basic profile of the people who work at Alcova? Yeah, I think we see a wide variety of clients, but for the most part, uh, we see a lot of startups, a lot of small business owners that want to take advantage of having a DC address and having their own office space, being able to bring in their own clients into the space and have a more professional environment uh, than they could working from home or elsewhere. Now, we heard early on uh, about some of the financial troubles we work faced. How is your business model different and sustainable? Yeah, I think our business is a lot different than WeWork. We're definitely a lot smaller, so we're not aggressively expanding. We're a lot more adaptable and flexible. We kind of custom make the membership plans for the client. So whether they want a short-term lease or just to work for one day or a few hours, we can work with uh, their schedule and needs and in terms of the fixed prices, are you renting your space? Do you own it? So we're renting our space. Uh, we do have a short-ish lease uh, compared to the WeWork leases. Well, I want to go to our voicemail box. Here's a message we got from Stephen in Austin, Texas. I hope you talk about digital warriors working in other countries. I'm based in Texas, but I have been fortunate enough to be able to work abroad a couple of times in the past two years. 
Now, the federal government doesn't keep track of how many U.S. citizens are working abroad, but a recent study published in the Journal of Financial Economics shows that remote and hybrid workers are moving away from cities and farther away from their offices. Emma, how does this complicate the picture for traditional workspaces? Well, first of all, it's complicated for employers because they have to keep track of of where their employees are for HR purposes, for tax purposes. So it can be an administrative burden for the people who manage these digital nomads. But it, it also makes it challenging if people want to call their workers back to the office, but their workers have scattered around the globe. They have to either decide they're really going to dig in and make the case for why the office is so important or just decide to embrace that newfound freedom. I'm curious to hear from you, Andy, as you are marketing your business to people, what is the selling point? Because we work with selling a, a lifestyle. How do you, how do you go to a company or, or talk to someone about membership and say, this is why this space could work for you? I think we're going about it in a bit more of a practical way. I think people really thrive in an office space um, and a space to witness other people working and have that sense of community um, and a bit of networking opportunities as well. And I think today we're seeing a kind of need for more wellness and mindfulness in uh, workspaces. We're moving away from the cubicle culture into something more Mindful. So I think another selling point for us is having opportunities to step away from work, take a breather, um, get a glass of tea. We're not doing too many perks like we work because it is unsustainable, but we do have a variety of amenities and free things for our members. And how do you create an economically sustainable model for the business when, you know, some people may only want to work for a day. Other people might want a longer term lease. What does the financial side of that look like? It is tricky. Um, because we are smaller, it's way easier for, for us to hit our capacity. Um, so right now we're seeing uh, that it is pretty easy to get people in. We have a wait list for our private offices. So I think just our size makes it doable. Whereas when you're in a bigger space, it's hard with that turnover and to be able to take longer term and short term members. Emma, what do you think? What are the barriers to people who have jobs that could be done fully remote, but they're still maybe working in an office space or at least close to their office? Well, I think one of the challenges employers have faced is that they've had to make the case for why it's worth it for people to come back. Because people realize that it takes money for them to, um, to commute. It takes time. So it's the burden is now kind of on employers to explain why should people come back to the office. And I think the answer is oftentimes the social connections that people have with their colleagues, with their bosses. There's mentorship. There's collaboration. Um, but in order for all that to really, the, for the promise of it to be fulfilled, employers have to thoughtfully create workspaces that allow people to spend meaningful time together. And Andy, what have you heard from individuals or, or companies with a flexible remote work policy about why they might opt to use a co-working space over working from home? I think it is that sense of community they they gain from, you know, working with others or at least in a space with others. Um, and I do notice, you know, our members talking to each other, networking a bit, a lot of startups kind of collaborate, collaborating, and that natural connection isn't really possible when you're working from home isolated from others. You know, Emma, I remember early on in the pandemic as people began to work more from home, um, stories about 
trackers being put on people's laptops so that, you know, the number of hours they were working at home could actually be tracked and traced because there was a concern about productivity. What does the data tell us about how working remotely affects worker productivity? It's interesting because the studies on productivity have been a little bit all over the map. Some have found a decline in productivity of something like 8 or even 20% in some cases. Others have found productivity gains of like 15 or 25%. So the findings are scattered. And what researchers tend to think is that it all just comes down to how well-managed remote workers are. So if they feel connected to their bosses, if they feel like they're still getting mentored even while working remotely, if they feel like they're still getting feedback then they're quite capable of doing their work super productively. But in some cases, um, the implementation of remote work plans has been a little bit more haphazard. Well, we got this email from Linda who says, I haven't been in the office since COVID and love it. We have a hybrid model and most staff have the option to work from home or a blend of home and on site. I'm much more productive without constant interruptions from time stealers. Management is made providing a collaborative environment and infrastructure a high priority and it works. It works if you respect and care for your people. It seems like I mean, we've been through these these. Uh, changes in in how we work that really predate the pandemic. I remember um, several years before the pandemic, there was, um, it was was taking vacation time off the table. So basically just work until you're finished with work and you can take whatever time you want. And there were lots of questions about that. And then when the pandemic came, people working from home and and what does that mean for the future of work, but, but also these questions about what work culture is supposed to be like, what it's supposed to feel like for people, and how much responsibility do businesses have to provide a work culture that that feels a certain way for their employees. How do you see that conversation continuing to shift? Well, I think that people have realized that culture requires effort. It's not just about having, you know, some cubicles or an open floor plan where people show up and bump into each other. There has to be a lot of thought and intentionality putting in put it put into orchestrating meetings, gatherings, relationships where people feel like they're learning from one another, collaborating and growing. So I think um, in some cases it's been a positive because employers have realized um, you can't just allow culture to organically emerge. You have to think about whether it's you know Zoom happy hours or Zoom coffees or. Um, in-person meetings in the office where people really have a chance to get to know one another, it just does require a degree of intentionality that maybe wasn't there before. We're talking to New York Times business reporter Emma Goldberg. Also with us is Andy Herrig. She's the owner and instructor at Alcova Yoga and Coworking. We're also hearing from lots of you, Liz in Texas emails. I have an office space in Austin where I live and have some flexibility to work remotely. I've loved co-working while traveling in specialty hotels in the Colorado mountains that offer co-working passes. I've used the Gravity House and Vale and get to ski a bit in the morning, then use their co-working space, visit the gym and spa, and have tasty lunch all very close to the mountain. I would love to see this in more vacation spots to be able to lengthen travel time, especially with limited days off. And Mary emails, I'm a member at Geekdom, a co-working space and collaborative startup community located downtown in San Antonio, Texas. As a public relations and media production solopreneur, I chose Geekdom because it's a true community that's supportive of small and growing businesses. It's so much more than just a desk. It's fun, energetic, and filled with inherently positive people who are actively working on meaning 
meaningful projects. I have a perfectly good office at home, but geekdom is where I get the inspiration I need. I'm Jen White. You're listening to 1A. Andy, you'll be coming up on your first year of business at Alcova in the coming months. What have you learned about what it takes to manage a sustainable co-working space? I have learned so much, especially because I kind of have two businesses going that are connected with the yoga and the co-working. I think in our co-working space, I've realized it's really important for people to have a quiet environment. I think, you know, when you think co-working, you think these wide open tables of people kind of working together and collaborating, but people do like to be able to take their phone calls, have a little bit of privacy. So we're trying to move a little bit more towards private offices and work pods and away from that, you know, long table setup. So that's one of the main things I've learned this year that we're shifting towards. So no ping pong tables in Alcova. <laughs> <laughs> not right now. <laughs> you know, Emma, as fewer people work from home and more employers enforce stricter hybrid arrangements that require employees to be in the office for at least part of the week, what is that signal about the future of flexible work arrangements? I think the future of flexible work arrangements are going to look pretty different for every um, company and for every industry because every employer is looking at the facts on the ground, looking at what their workers are asking for, at um, the severity of commute in their particular location, at um, you know the reality of what wages they're able to offer and, and the realities of the labor market, and they're making decisions based on all those factors. So I think whereas before we had this kind of forced one-size-fits-all approach to where people work and when, now it's going to be a little bit more custom. And, and that means you know schedules that look a little bit different, Um, locations and arrangements that look a little bit different. It's going to be a lot more based on what employers are able to offer and what workers are asking for. Well, and how are employers weighing the costs of maintaining an office space? Because it's not not cheap to keep the lights on. It's really not. Um, But on the other hand, I have found that almost every CEO I've spoken to has said there is something that feels just incredibly important about at the end of the day having some in-person space where people can come gather because I think they've realized that um, it's hard to, you know, forge the same level of relationships, even if it's hybrid, even if it's just a couple of days a quarter that people are coming in, they still want to have some kind of home base. And that's to say nothing of the fact that um, there are still, for example, parents who feel like they need to get out of their homes in order to work productively or, you know, people who live in small apartments with roommates. There are some people who are actually actively asking for space together. Well, we're still hearing from you, Gustavo emails. As the CEO of a D.C.-based tech company, we rented space at a WeWork early on. The space was tiny, 300 square feet for six people. The rent worked out to about four times the comparable rent for traditional office space, so extremely pricey. With our staff working in such close quarters, it wasn't all that productive or comfortable, and they often resorted to working in the common areas so as not to be on top of each other. The only advantage was that it was month to month, so once we grew a little larger, we opted out for regular office space. And Nicole emails, it's really important for there to be availability of remote work. Disabled folks have been saying for years that we could contribute more to the community if there were ways for companies to introduce remote work. During COVID, it was proven that people could work sometimes more successfully from home. It's not that much of a burden for the employers to give people what they need in order to be the most successful at work. Well, as we wrap up here in this final minute, I'm curious to hear from both of you what you think the future of co-working spaces looks like. Andy? 
Yeah, I think uh, co-working spaces, I think a lot of smaller companies are going to thrive by catering towards a specific audience and being flexible and adaptable. I also think uh, there's going to be a growth in these hybrid co-working spaces. So maybe it's a cafe attached to a co-working space, a gym with a co-working space, um, for us yoga co-working. So kind of getting a little bit creative with it. Emma, I'll give you the last word here. I think it's going to be pretty different depending on the city. And I think it's also going to be catering especially to young people, who I think are some of the most eager to spend time with other people, to connect, to make new friends in their workspaces. Well, we'll leave the conversation there. That's New York Times business reporter Emma Goldberg. Also with us, Andy Herrig. She's the owner and instructor at Alcova Yoga and Coworking. Thanks to you both. Today's producer was Lauren Hamilton. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Schizophrenia and Psychosis Action Alliance, shattering barriers to treatment, survival, and recovery. People with schizophrenia can recover and thrive. More at wecanthrive.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Chevron, taking action to keep methane in the pipe. They've trialed advanced detection technologies and are committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. That's energy in progress. More at chevron.com slash methane. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR.